Hello, church. It is so good to be back. It is great to see you, too. It's like coming home except colder. (laughs) I am so excited for what the Lord has been doing in and through you. Um, I've I've received updates from some of you personally, from some of the um, leaders here from time to time, and my mind is always drawn back to the words of the Apostle Paul that he wrote to the Church of Philippi. Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And Paul writes, I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And I praise the Lord that we're seeing that right here. The Lord doing a good work, continuing to bring it to completion until he returns. The Lord has been faithfully at work in you. I'm happy to say I've seen great evidence of the Lord's faithfulness in my own life in Pennsylvania. Um, Some of you know I've been preaching once or twice a month in a church in our area. Very grateful for that. I'm not serving in there uh, as a pastor, just as a preacher, filling in some gaps and um, meeting some needs in their ministry. But the Lord has providentially, I think, placed me in that position uh, to be used in a special way for that church. And I I just praising the Lord for what he's doing in me, praising the Lord for what he's doing in you. But I got to say, I miss you. It is really good to see you. Um, And I'm, I'm sorry, my visit is so short this time around. We're hoping to maybe be able to stay a little bit longer um, come the summertime. But Pastor Garrett uh, told me, oh, and I should say too, my wife says hi. Um, We were not able to fit her into this trip. She didn't want to stay in the back of the moving uh, van with the kids. So um, we decided to keep her home this time around. But hopefully we'll be able to come as a family um, a couple months from now. But Pastor Garrett told me I could preach on whatever I wanted to. Uh, He said, I don't have to preach about Christmas I could do whatever was on my heart, foolish man that he was, that he said these things. But it is, it is Christmas time, so I'm going to do some Christmas. We're going to start and we're going to end with Christmas. And hopefully, like a good sandwich, the stuff in the middle is only going to enhance the bread that you enjoy with that sandwich. So let's start with a Christmas passage that, strangely enough, is almost never read on Christmas time. John 1.14 you don't have to turn there. I just want you to look up at the screen. John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. What does that mean? This is the time of year where we take a step back from all the normal activities in life stop what we're doing, hopefully, and focus on what we call the incarnation. God becoming human flesh. The word becoming flesh and dwelling, more literally, John writes, tabernacling among us. If you know your Old Testament, that that word is filled with meaning, God's presence among his people. We read the birth stories about Jesus. We sing the hymns which reflect those stories Children acted out in plays. We have special services in our church to to reflect on the baby Jesus during this time of year. In the incarnation, the word became flesh. What does that mean? What was the purpose 
of Christmas. What we're going to do today in the time that I have with you is we're going to consider the miracle of the incarnation through the lens of Isaiah 42. So you can take your Bibles and open up to Isaiah 42. You didn't think you'd get me here without going to Isaiah at least at some point, right? So turn to Isaiah 42. And as you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of context here. As, as Isaiah approaches chapter 40 in his book, the first 39 chapters of this book are kind of like one unit. The, the last 40 to 66 chapters are another unit. And up until chapter 40, most of Isaiah is about judgment. God is going to judge the nations. God is going to judge his people, Israel. The book anticipates the judgment of God to come. When we reach chapter 40, this is like a turning point in the book of Isaiah. It's not like there's no other judgment there. I mean, there is some more judgment in this book. It's, it's kind of though like, like a little bit of pepper sprinkled into a very sweet dish. Most, much of the rest of the book is about highlighting the redemption that is to come for Israel. Highlighting the restoration that is to come for God's people. So it's a glimpse forward beyond Isaiah's time, beyond even the time of Israel as a nation, and it looks towards eternity. What is God going to do for his people to fully restore them in the way that he intended from the very beginning? And one of the ways that God highlights this great restoration to come is when Isaiah talks about who he calls God's servant. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at Isaiah 42, and I think you'll see what I mean when I, when I say that this is a passage that highlights the coming of Christ, not just in Christmas time, but even beyond that to come. Look at Isaiah 42. We'll start right at the top in verse 1. Isaiah writes, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And we're going to stop right there, halfway through the verse. Before we go any further, we have to make sure that we have a clear understanding who this servant is here. One of the challenges of reading this part of Isaiah is that Isaiah uses that term servant in multiple ways. For example, in verse 19 of this same chapter, the servant there is very clearly Israel. It represents God's people, Israel. The servant is blind, the servant is deaf, and and Isaiah is very clearly speaking to the Israelites in their sin. And in many verses in this part of the book, Israel is God's servant. But in the second half of chapter 44, God starts to use the term servant to talk about a pagan king named Cyrus, King Cyrus of Persia. Cyrus wouldn't be on the scene for another 150 years after Isaiah writes this, but that does not stop Isaiah from predicting his coming. By name, Cyrus will come, and he tells us what Cyrus will do. It's an amazing prophecy, and God in those passages sometimes uses the word servant to talk about King Cyrus. At other times, God uses the word servant in this book to talk about godly people like Isaiah himself. In other parts of Scripture, servant is used of folks like King David and and people like Joshua and people like Moses. And, And again, in Isaiah, Isaiah is called God's servant. So that term servant can refer to a lot of different things, even within the same book. It can refer to Israel. It can refer to a pagan king named Cyrus. It can refer to the prophet Isaiah or other godly leaders like David. But here, I'm going to make a case that in Isaiah 42, we're not talking about any of them. What God is talking about is he's talking to the Messiah. He's talking about Jesus, 
the one who was to come in Isaiah's time, the one who has come and who will one day come again in our time. So what we're going to look at is this prophecy about Christ. Now, the reason I say I think this is uh, about Jesus, this servant here is not Cyrus, it's not Isaiah, it's not the people of Israel, but this is Jesus. Down in verse 6, we'll see this in a few minutes, but what we're going to see is that the Lord clearly distinguishes this servant from the people of Israel and from the nations around Israel. So the servant isn't Israel, and the servant can't be Cyrus because the servant is distinguished from the nations. But most importantly, the reason I believe this is Jesus we're looking at here is because in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, starting in verse 15, Matthew takes this whole passage and applies it directly to Christ. So from the testimony of Scripture itself, Isaiah 42 is about Jesus. In that passage in Matthew 12, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. Guy has a withered hand, and he goes into the synagogue on a Sabbath day and heals this man. And the Pharisees, of course, are very upset about this, just like they always are, right? Ungodly hypocrites often get upset at righteous people. And the Pharisees conspire against Jesus. They try to figure out a way to kill him. And instead of staying and fighting with them, instead of combating them, Jesus withdraws to another area and continues his ministry among people who would accept that ministry. Matthew says that Jesus' actions fulfills the words of Isaiah the prophet, and then Matthew quotes Isaiah 42 and applies it to Jesus. So I think very clearly the best way to look at this passage is to say this is Jesus. That's how the New Testament looks at it. You can make a good argument even just from the Old Testament. This is the Messiah, the Son of God incarnate. What is he going to come and do? Now, the Lord says in Isaiah 42 that we should behold his servant. We look upon him. We dwell on him. We consider Christ. That's what we're doing this morning. That's what we're doing this whole Christmas season, right? We consider Jesus. He says, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Now, what caught my attention about those lines this week was that these are phrases and words normally used of God's people Israel. God upholds his people, Psalm 41. Israel is God's chosen people. All over the book of Deuteronomy, you see that phrase used. The Lord delights in his people when they are faithful to him, Psalm 35. All over scripture, you see these phrases used of God's people Israel. But Isaiah 42 is not about Israel. The servant is Christ. So what's interesting to me is that God takes these terms and these words that are usually applied to the people of Israel, and he applies them to Jesus. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Where Israel sinned, Jesus was righteous. One of the cool opportunities I had this semester in college, in university, was uh, I got to teach a gospels class. So in just a few months, I got to teach through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all together, kind of a concentrated study in the Gospels. And one of the things I saw so clearly there was how many times Christ did Israel-ish things better than Israel. And what do I mean by that? Israel couldn't survive a few days in the wilderness without food, without grumbling to God. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. He's tempted by Satan himself. 
and he succeeds. Never sins. Israel failed to keep herself holy. Jesus is the embodiment of holiness, and the people he touches, the people he impacts, they become holy as well. Israel failed to drive out enemy nations. Well, everywhere Jesus goes, what is he doing? He is driving out demons from the land. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Jesus is God's chosen one in whom God's soul delights. And I think that's why God takes these phrases usually used of Israel and applies them to the coming Christ. He is going to succeed where we have failed. And what does Isaiah say God's servant will do? Look at verse 2, or excuse me, the end of verse 1. God says, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The servant Messiah will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Perfectly filled. Now this isn't like a temporary filling like Samson got. Remember the story of Samson in the book of Judges? He was filled for short bursts of time when he needed God to get him out of something that he did, you know, some, some sort of mess that he created for himself. God would put the spirit upon him. Samson would go and he'd beat up a bunch of Philistines. This is not like King Saul, who, who was only filled for a short amount of time, and then God removed the spirit from Saul and put it upon King David. It's not even like King David, who feared that God would remove the spirit of God from him after he sinned with Bathsheba. No, it says God will put the spirit upon Jesus, period. Full stop. Never to be removed, never to be diminished. And as a result, Jesus will bring forth justice to the nations. You're going to hear that as a huge theme in this passage today. Jesus brings justice to the nations. Not just to his people Israel, but beyond Israel, to the nations as well. We hear justice mentioned again in verse 3. We're going to hear justice mentioned again in verse 4. We're going to hear it described in those verses. What is the servant's mission? It is to bring justice to the nations. Isn't that great? You want to know why I think that's great? We are a people who long for justice. Every time we see injustice happening, either in the news in our country, we, we long for things to be made right. Every time we see injustice happening at work, we desire for a restored order. When we experience injustice personally, we secretly hope our, our enemies will experience God's righteous wrath. Maybe sometimes it's not so secret that we hope this. But we want justice, don't we? We want justice. Jesus is the God of justice. He brings it. And we're talking perfect justice. We're not talking Judge Judy justice. We're talking perfect justice. It's not our, our warped sense of what is right and wrong. It is God's perfect justice to the nations. That means that no one will ever get away with anything. Ever. Even if you feel like someone got away with something here on earth, we don't have to worry about getting even because God is keeping score and he is a God of perfect justice. Now, what will that look like? Can we get a glimpse of what that justice is? Verses 2, 3, and 4 illustrate it for us in three different ways. The first two ways show us some of how the Messiah handled injustice while he was here on earth. And then verse 4 shows us what justice will look like when the Messiah returns. Let's start with verse 2. It says of God's servant, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. 
So first, Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah will quietly endure enemy persecution. Now, the reason I think this is talking about the Messiah's reaction to persecution, there's two reasons for that. First, the verb cry aloud is usually used in context of a cry for help, a cry of desperation, a cry of need. The Israelites cried out loud uh, at their unfair treatment in Egypt. In Numbers 11, there's this fire from God that's burning in judgment against God's people, and the Israelites cry aloud for for Moses' help. So this is a verb usually used in these sorts of contexts where people are in trouble and they need help from God. The Messiah will not cry aloud or make his voice heard in the streets in these contexts. Now, the second reason I think that this is talking specifically about Jesus' reaction to persecution is because of how Matthew applies it in Matthew chapter 12. Remember, when the New Testament quotes this passage, it quotes it in context of Jesus choosing not to engage with the Pharisees in their persecution of him. So in his reaction to this injustice during his first advent, Jesus many times chose not to engage to take the higher road and to go minister in places that were more accepting of his ministry. Now, the second way the Messiah shows his relationship to justice is in verse 3. It says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. The Messiah will show grace and compassion to the weak. Isaiah uses two analogies here. First, he compares people to a bruised reed. And the imagery here is like when you're walking through the woods, and and maybe, maybe you notice a branch that is like mostly snapped off. It's snapped and it's kind of just hanging there by maybe a little strip of bark. What's your natural instinct? Yeah, to kind of snap it off, to reach up, snap off the rest of the way. Jesus wouldn't snap it off. The second analogy is a faintly burning wick. It's like when you invite your relatives over for thanks or Christmas dinner and, and you light some candles on the table to kind of mask the smell of your aunt's perfume. And two hours into the party, that wick that you lit hours ago, is now just almost at its end. It's faintly burning. It's giving off more smoke than it's giving off glow. What does that make you want to do with that wick? Snuff it out or blow it out, right? Jesus wouldn't snuff it. Now, we're not talking about a literal reed and a literal wick here. These are metaphors. Who are the bruised reeds? Who are the faintly burning wicks? This seems to be a way of saying the Messiah will have extreme levels of compassion upon those who are clinging to their last hopes of life. Think about that man with the withered hand. He was in the synagogue on the Sabbath desperate for help. And what does Christ do? Knowing it's going to stir up trouble, he has compassion on the weak. Think about the woman who is bleeding for 12 years, hemorrhaging. Her doctors only made her condition worse. Every doctor she goes to just makes it worse and worse and worse. For 12 years, she had no hope. Yet what does Jesus do? He does not break that bruised reed. Think of the invalid who's laying by the pool in John chapter 5, hoping to be healed for 38 years. This man lay there desperate and hopeless. 38 years. A flickering wick lying in the pit of his life. And Jesus, in his great mercy and compassion, does not snuff out that wick. He lights it further. Now, many of you resonate with this because you have been there. 
from the deepest pits of your life, you have been forgiven much. And Christ says that those who have been forgiven much love much in return. You have been brought from a very dark place and Christ has lit that flame and brought you into his eternal life because that is what God does. That is the Jesus that we worship. While we were yet in our sins, Christ died for us. Isn't that awesome? Never lose hope for the people in your life who you think are lost forever. Never lose hope for those people in your life who you look at them and you say, if ever there is a bruised reed, if ever there is a faintly burning wick, you are it. Don't lose hope because Jesus is a God who does not snuff those things out, but heals and enlightens. You never know who God will turn around for his glory to be his own child. So the Messiah quietly endures persecution. The Messiah shows compassion and mercy to the weak. Jesus deals out this justice faithfully, the text says, faithfully. And then verse 4 shows us how Jesus will deal out this justice in the future. And this is even future to us here. Look at verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. The Messiah will not stop until perfect justice has been established everywhere. There is no quit in him. And this is so encouraging, isn't it? Because again, frankly, we all wear out. I did. You wear out. Many of you are probably feeling worn out now sitting under Pastor Garrett's ministry. I, I get it, you know. <laughs> I, he's not in here right now. He's with the kids out there as I'm teasing him. But um, Jesus won't stop until the job is done. Praise God for that. Jesus is inexhaustible. It says even to the farthest reaches of the coastlands they have ex- they, until they, they have experienced justice. I think the furthest regions of the coastlands, after doing some digging in the Hebrew here, that refers to New Jersey, from what I understand here. But the Messiah is going to be synonymous with justice. He is justice embodied. The Messiah, perfect justice for the weak, perfect justice for the nations. The word will go out and will not stop until all have heard. When the angel Gabriel tells Mary that the Lord God will give to Jesus, the throne of his father, David, and that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom will be no end. Now we know what kind of a kingdom reign he will be reigning with. A reign of justice, a reign of perfect righteousness. You think about this in connection to Christmas. What did Jesus come to do? Ultimately, to save, to reign with perfect Justice and righteousness. That's what this is about. So, at this point, the passage takes a little bit of a turn. Verses 1 to 4, God was speaking to Israel, telling her what the Messiah would come to do. And now in verses 5 to 9, God speaks directly to his servant. The Father speaks to Jesus. And he begins by saying, look at verse 5, Thus says God, The Lord, notice Lord is all capital letters there, which means that's translating Yahweh, God's personal name. So thus says God, Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. This is a powerful introduction, isn't it? 
Before we even read what God has to say, this is a powerful setup. When you're introducing someone, when you're introducing someone else, you kind of want to build up their accolades, right? Show them their resume. A few months ago, I was, I was filling a pulpit in New Jersey. Uh, it was a church that I grew up in, a church where I kind of cut my teeth in ministry. So, I was so grateful to be able to go back and preach there for a little bit. And uh, we have a very long history together. But the pastor there, great friend of mine, lifelong friend, um, he fell ill during the week. He called me up, said, hey, can you come and just kind of cover this pulpit? It's a kind of a last-minute request. So I was able to, to be there, went and filled with, for them. And, and when the worship leader went to introduce me, I was kind of wondering, like, what, what exactly are they going to say? You know, about half the people know very well who I am. Some of the people don't know me anymore. But what are they going to say? Are they going to talk about my pastoral experience? Maybe they'll mention that I've grown up here in this church. Maybe they'll mention a book or two that I've written, or they'll mention my education or where I'm working now or, or something like that, right? Nope. They put up a picture of me as a five-year-old on the screen. <laughs> and they had the church do a drum roll with their hands and knees and said, Brian Murawski. And that was it. Like that was the whole introduction, the weirdest introduction I've ever had in my entire life. Think about how God introduces himself. What does he say? He's got the ultimate resume, doesn't he? Puts all of us to shame. First of all, you can't see this in the English translations as well, but Isaiah writes God's name here in a, in a bit of a unique way. Normally, the word God in the Old Testament translates the Hebrew word Elohim. Here, it's the abbreviated form El. And that's not too uncommon. You see that in scripture here and there. But what is uncommon is that the Hebrew also has the article, the word the, before El. The God, Yahweh. That's how Isaiah writes it. That's how God introduces himself. The God, Yahweh. The one true God, the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the God superior to all the other so-called gods and so-called idols out there in this world, they call him Yahweh. That's just the first line. And then it gives these descriptors of the true God. It says he created the heavens and he stretched them out. God is God because God is creator. He alone created the universe. He alone can call forth something from nothing. It says he spread out the earth and what comes from it, stretching out the heavens, spreading out the earth. It's, it's metaphorical ways of depicting God creating as easily as someone makes his bed in the morning. As easy as you fold your laundry, that's what it took for God to create this whole universe. The God, creator, who stretches out the heavens and the earth, all of creation, that thousands of billions of trillions of stars and galaxies, all of it as easy as doing laundry. Isn't it great? It says he gives breath to the people on this earth and spirit to those who dwell in it. Not only is he creator God, he is sustainer God. He sustains those who are on the earth. He gives us breath and spirit. He is life giver. So he introduces himself by saying, the God, Yahweh, creator, sustainer, life giver. And then he tells the Messiah how that God is going to act through him to impact us. Follow this. Look at verses 6 and 7. 
God says, I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. God here is speaking directly to the Messiah. The word you, when he says, I have called you, that's a singular you. He's speaking directly to Jesus. God calls him. God keeps him. And God gives him. God calls the Messiah in righteousness. That means the Messiah has a very special mission. He is, just like the prophets of old who were called to give a particular message to Israel in their time, Jesus was called to give us this message of righteousness. He comes to bring justice and righteousness and be justice and righteousness for us. God calls him. God keeps him. He takes the Messiah by the hand and keeps him. That means God leads him, protects him. Jesus is guided by and cared for by the Father. He guides him or calls him. He keeps him and God gives him. God gives the Messiah as a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. Now, in my view here, people refers to the Israelites. And the nations refers to those outside of Israel. Jesus came for all. Jesus was life given for Israel and the Gentiles. He is the embodiment of the covenant for God's people. And why does God do all this through him? It says to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, to bring out from prison those who are sitting in darkness. Now, of course, these are all metaphors, mostly. I mean, Jesus did literally open the eyes of the blind at times. But this is metaphorical for Jesus spiritually opening the eyes of those who are blind to this world. He has brought prisoners out of sin in their dungeons. Those who were enslaved to sin now set free by Christ. That's you and I. That's us. Jesus offers spiritual salvation to the blind and in prison. He he brings people from darkness to light. He raises the spiritually dead to life. That is why Jesus came to this earth. When we think about Christmas, we cannot stop at the manger. The manger is a good starting place, but we can't only focus on the birth story. We view the birth story with the cross ever in the background because if we lose sight of the ultimate purpose of what Christ has come to do, then we have lost it all. Now, I don't pretend to believe that everybody in this room has accepted Christ. Some of you need to consider the possibility that you are still walking in darkness. That you are still shackled by sin. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Galatians 5.1. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. He talks about placing our faith in Christ, not in the works of the law, that you might be free from bondage to sin and you might come into the light of God. And I would encourage you to, to consider your heart. Have your eyes open to the spiritual truths of the word of God. Are you still in sin, in that dungeon? If so, cry out to your Lord. The Messiah came to die for you. Believe in him and his resurrection. Put your faith in him and not in your own self-righteousness. And the Bible says you will be saved. So God, the creator God, sustainer, life giver, He empowers the Messiah to give sight to the blind, to give freedom to the sinful prisoner. And because of this, the Bible says God alone gets the glory. Look at verse 8. I am Yahweh. That is my name. 
My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. What a great verse. God alone gets the glory. God alone gets the glory. God alone gets the glory. None of us, but God. We all need to get this through our stubborn little heads. The entirety of human existence moves towards the goal of glorifying God. God will get the glory. God will get the glory in this church. All the things that you accomplish for him, the lives that will and have been and are saved, the missionaries that will be sent, the people that will be discipled, all of that brings glory not to you, but to your Savior. God will get the glory in your life personally. Every righteous action that you've ever done is a direct result of the Father's election in you in eternity past, the Son's redemption of you and your salvation, and the Holy Spirit's continual work through you as a believer now. There is nothing that you've ever done that you could look at yourself and say, I'm worthy of praise for that. God gets the glory. So in a way, that introduction of me at that one church was perfectly great. Who cares what I've done? Who cares who I am? In their eyes, I'm this five-year-old who grew up here and they've seen all my ugly warts and scars and bad behavior and all that. You know what that does? That gives God the glory for working through me, as God will do for you. God gets the glory. He is incomparable. He is creator, sustainer, and life giver. He gives sight to the blind. He gives freedom to the prisoners. He is God, and God gets the glory. Now, one of the reasons God gets the glory is because of what he says in verse 9, last verse of Isaiah 42 that we'll read today. God says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God says, former things have come to pass. Now, that's easy enough to say, isn't it? We all say things like that from time to time. And what's happened, happened. It's in the past. But to say the new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell them to you, that is a God thing, isn't it? That's something only God can do. That's what separates God from all the other false religions out there. Only God can accurately tell us the future before it happens. He does it all over the book of Isaiah, by the way. One of my favorite prophecies in Isaiah is in Isaiah 44, where God talks about Cyrus. God predicts that a ruler named Cyrus will send the Israelites back to their homeland and rebuild the temple. Now, when God predicts this, when he says this, the Israelites are still in their land. So God is predicting not only the exile, but the return. When God says this, the temple is still there, which means God's predicting the destruction of the temple and the rebuilding. And when God says this, Cyrus has not even been born yet. That's the power of a God who has written the future. And that's what sets him apart with all other religions out there. Whenever someone asks me how I know Christianity is the one true religion over any others, I point to the power of prophecy. Prophecy is God's self-apologetic. It's the way that he proves his own existence. You want to know that I am Yahweh God? Let me tell you what's about to happen. None of us can do that. Think about what we've just seen. God began this passage by saying his servant, the Messiah, will be indwelt with the Holy Spirit in order to bring perfect justice to all people. God then gives us his personal bio, 
I am the God, Yahweh, creator, sustainer, life giver. He tells us the Messiah was sent to open the eyes of the blind, to, to set captives free, to bring light to the world. He tells us he alone will get the glory. He says he alone has the ability to prophesy about things that are not yet. Now, keeping all of that in mind, think again on that verse that began this sermon. John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What does it mean that the word became flesh and dwelt among us? What is the significance of this incarnation? What does it mean that God himself was born unto man? What does Christmas mean? Church, it means that we have hope for perfect justice one day through Jesus Christ, our Messiah. It means that the creator, sustainer, and life giver loved you enough to humble himself to become a man, giving up the privileges of heaven for a time to walk among us and die for you. That God died for you. Wow. Christmas means the Messiah was sent to open the eyes of the blind. The Messiah was sent to set prisoners free from their sin. The Messiah was sent to to shed light in a dark, dark world. And through all of that, God alone gets the glory. God predicted these things from long ago. God alone gets the glory for Christmas. No wonder why the angel of the Lord said to the shepherds on that night, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, who is Messiah Yahweh. Christ the Lord. No wonder why when the the righteous and devout Simeon first laid eyes on Jesus, he exclaimed, For my eyes have seen your salvation, God, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Because they recognized that the fullness of God was now tabernacled in human flesh, dwelling among us. That is Jesus. And that is Christmas. It's only appropriate after a passage like this to turn our full attention to Christ in praise. We're going to sing a song called, O Come Emmanuel. You know what the word Emmanuel means? It means God is with us. God with us. O come thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee. Let's pray and then sing that song and praise to God. God, thank you so much for this church here. I thank you for the way that you have worked in and through them, for the good work that you are doing in them. And Lord, I do pray that you'd continue that good work until you shall come again. And we know you will come again, Lord, because your word says it. You've come the first time just as Isaiah the prophet predicted. You will certainly come the second time to send justice to this world, to set us right, Lord, to open the eyes of the blind, to set the prisoners free. We thank you, God, for bringing us out of our dungeons, for bringing us out of our darkness, and for opening our eyes to you. 
I pray that this Christmas season we can reflect on Christ, worship him together, and Lord, that many others would know of your wonderful salvation for your people. We pray these things and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.